0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly Slash DSR member and use code DSR twenty twenty two at checkout. Thank you. Nine twelve ten
2: twenty eight two
1: twenty three.
2: This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. It's uh, January 6th as we record this, uh, and we are looking back on the events on this date one year ago. We're joined today uh, by uh, Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, who is a who teaches law at University of Michigan Law School. Uh, how are you today, Barb?
0: I'm doing well, David. Thanks.
2: Oh, and I don't want to forget Sisters in Law podcast. Thank you. Um, and by Joanne Freeman, who is a professor of history um, at Yale. Uh, and you also have a podcast, don't you? I
3: do. Now and then that I co-host with Heather Cox Richardson. <laughs>
2: Who is great and uh, who we admire greatly also. So I want to start by looking at a couple things from breaking news and then take a step back and start trying to place this uh, in some kind of uh, context. Um, uh, after all, it's January 6th, so it's epiphany also. We could use some epiphanies about this since there is so much else having been said about it. Um, But uh, I'm going to start first. I'm going to turn to each of you to talk about some of the big uh, speeches that have been made in the past couple of days uh, that draw on your own background. Uh, Barb, I'd like to start with you. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, made an address uh, yesterday. He spoke to the colleagues at the Department of Justice, but also via television to uh, everybody in the US. It was unusual for Garland because he has not had a big public profile by choice, I think, Uh, and it was significant because he was addressing issues about which there's a great deal of public interest. What did you think of his speech?
0: David, I thought the speech was A-plus. I know there are many out there who thought it was a little too tepid, wanted a more full-throated announcement that Donald Trump is under investigation. But that is just not how the Justice Department rules. I thought he said some things that, to my ear, to anyone who has given these kinds of talks on behalf of the Justice Department, knows what is off limits. And I thought he went right up to the line when he talked about that the investigation includes uh, people at every level, that it includes people who are not present at the Capitol on January 6th, that there cannot be one set of rules for the powerful and a different set for the powerless, that their work is not yet done and that the more severe cases come later after they've had a chance to amass the evidence. And so to my ear, that sounded like we get it, we're on it. We are not just prosecuting these pawns, we're also prosecuting the masterminds behind all this. And I thought the other thing that was really uh, important and surprising to me was that he tied it, not just narrowly to January 6th, but to the broader assault on democracy. He talked about the threats against local officials that we're seeing around the country. And he talked about the attack on voting rights, and by tying all those three together, uh, I think he demonstrated that he gets it—that this is this was not just an isolated incident. This is an assault on democracy, and this is a very important uh, priority for the Department of Justice.
2: Yeah, I thought that last point was a was a was a good one. It seems to me that you know there, there are a number of smoking guns in the cases against Trump that people talk about, but the gun with the most smoke coming out of it was his call to the Georgia secretary mm-hmm. of state in which he said, you know, change the, change the outcome of the election, mm-hmm. uh, which is not directly a January 6th mm-hmm. uh, uh, issue, but uh, clearly is a case of a president meddling in an election outcome in a way that seems extra legal. Right. Is that my.
0: Yes, I, I agree with it. And it, I think, you know, it, it's possible. You could charge this as all one broad conspiracy, a, a conspiracy to, Defraud the United States, and that part of the conspiracy was the attack on January 6th to stop the certification. But it also included the strategy to reach out to states, swing states, and persuade legislate, legislatures to declare fraud in their own elections. And the statute allows legislators to then replace the electors with their own electors. And so that's the letter that was drafted by. Jeffrey Clark, who was a high level Justice Department official that he presented to these DOJ officials who threatened to resign. I think that is such an important part of all of this. And so I would imagine that anybody at the Justice Department is, is act- absolutely horrified by Jeffrey Clark's behavior, and that has to be a part of what they're looking at. And it ties into what Donald Trump was trying to do in that call with Georgia. And it's such good evidence of his effort to subvert the, the voters in Georgia, but of course the, the key element that they have to find is intent to defraud, which means he has to know it was a lie. I, I remember the old uh, Seinfeld episode when George Costanza was coaching Jerry on how to beat a lie detector test, a polygraph. And he said, if you believe it, it's not a lie. And so did, did Donald Trump convince himself that this was all true? I think not. And I think there, but the question is, can you find evidence of that? And I think one of the keys to that is gonna be William Barr. Who, uh, who declared that there was no widespread fraud in the election.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a little clue in the president saying to Raffensperger, you know, I only need 11,348 votes or whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. um, which suggested that what he was after was not really the truth, but an outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um,
2: uh, Joanne, so the, the, the other big address uh, actually was two addresses today, the vice president of the United States and the president Stood up in the Congress uh, and uh, made an address to the nation. On, on, in terms of January sixth, Vice President was pretty effective. Reminded us that, you know, some of her greatest strengths are as a prosecutor. But the president stood up and he did something that he hasn't really done this explicitly and very forcefully. Said, "Look, this is on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a threat to democracy." He didn't use Donald Trump's name, but it was kind of extraordinary uh, for. Uh, sitting president to go after his predecessor in this way. What do you think of this?
3: Well, I think um, I probably join a lot of people in um, feeling some sense of relief that that was said out loud, although you're right, it's striking that that came from the president. I think one of the things that happens with everyone focusing on January 6th is it becomes an isolated partisan event. And, And you can say it was an insurrection. You can say it wasn't. You can you can play the word game that is going on a lot now, I think, between Republicans and Democrats. But the fact of the matter is, and just as Barb was just suggesting, this is part of a larger pattern. You know, as a historian, that's my job is to look for patterns over time. And you can't look at all of the surrounding events of which January 6th is a part, like what's happening on a local level, on a state level with controlling elections, you can't do that without seeing that this is an assault on democracy, on the fundamentals of democracy. There are a lot of people out there, and I confront some of them in my public work, who not only don't think that, but I think don't fully understand what democracy is and how it works. So I think the more that someone can step forward and talk about how this isn't just a day that's important and it's important because the former president was involved with it, but that it's part of a larger pattern that's a major threat. That to me, you know, a year later, looking back to January 6th, at the time, a year ago, I couldn't believe what was happening. And I had a a huge response like everyone else. Now, I can't believe what isn't happening. I can't believe that there hasn't been more of an acknowledgement of the import of that day and that, in a sense, there hasn't been much of a response, and actually there's been open denial by a lot on the right. So uh, from start to finish, I think this is in some ways surprising, but I think it's pretty vitally important for the president to stand up and say democracy should be protected.
2: Well, I think both of you are on to an extremely important point. I, like uh, others, I'm, I'm, you know, frustrated at the pace of... The investigation, although I understand why investigations move slowly. Um, And, you know, I I take some comfort in the fact that we know a lot more than we knew a a year ago. Uh, And in fact, knowing what we now know, uh, uh, it seems um, irresponsible, Barb, to view January 6th as an isolated incident. Uh, In fact, it seems almost in the interests. Of Donald Trump and those around him to define it as an as a narrow incident, uh, because then it becomes about whether he directly incited it or whether, in some way, he violated some law, like violate you know seeking to disrupt a, a, a federal proceeding. Um, but the reality is that now, as we know, and you mentioned some things we've learned, but you know we've heard Peter Navarro talk about his plan. And- And we've learned about the war room and we've learned about all these other things that from before the election, the president was saying, uh, you know, we could be defrauded, they're going to cheat. And within moments of the election, he set in motion an effort to discredit the election and launched an effort in terms of disinformation. And in the days following the election, set in motion legal challenges, all of which not only were rebuffed, but as we have subsequently learned, were not founded in any irregularities. And when you suggest they're massive irregularities, and it turns out that in fact there are no irregularities, and it is the cleanest, most scrutinized election in American history, that's significant in this context. And then, you know, you, you can't view January 6th purely you know, uh, on its own. The idea behind January 6th was to have the vice president go um, to the Senate and say, there's too many questions. And those questions obviously had to be predicated over the preceding months. And uh, we're not going to, you know, we can't certify this. It's got to go back to the states. And then in a few states where he felt like he had a political advantage, he would get the results challenged. And he would, you know, overcome the will of the people that way. Uh, And that involved lawyers in many states, calls to many states, calls from the president, calls from Lindsey Graham, you know, visits from, you know, lawyers and Rudy Giuliani and others, uh, money going to people to support these efforts and so forth. And so, as you say, Barb, uh, uh, it, it's, it's almost a disservice uh, to those involved in January 6th not to present this as a conspiracy. Uh, And it also represents kind of a failure to understand what's really going on. Uh, Now, do do, do you agree with the case I'm making here, even though I'm the junior non-lawyer not making it?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I I think both of you, Joanne and you, David, have both talked about how the way there are um, critics, Republicans, who want to frame this very narrowly. Kevin McCarthy has said the real... Uh, scandal here that we should be investigating is why Nancy Pelosi failed to have the Capitol prepared to withstand the attack that day. I mean, my gosh, one, it's not Nancy Pelosi's job to work on security for the building. But despite that, I mean, talk about victim blaming, right? I mean, how how about the, the fact that people attacked us? Uh, shouldn't we, we be worried more about the root cause than about why we weren't able to protect ourselves? I mean, uh, analogies come to mind that I, that I won't make, but um, I, I think that uh, it's clear to me that the January 6th committee gets this. Uh, you know, there's been recent reporting that they have divided their 40 plus staffers, and these are all former prosecutors and people who know how to conduct investigations into five different teams, and they're designated by color. I suppose that's to avoid you know, some sort of label about their work or some sort of suggestion that there's a first team and a second team that there's a prioritization set of colors. So there's a green team that's looking at the money. And I guess that's no coincidence that that they're they're the green team. And so who funded all these rallies? And um, what are the financial ties? Uh, Do any of those come back to Trump or his campaign? There's a blue team that is looking at how the government agencies were preparing before January 6th, like, where was the FBI? Why was there not a joint DHS-FBI bulletin about all this? Um, there's so much media speculation in the days up to January 6th, expecting this kind of attack on Washington. And how did the FBI and DHS not get that? Chris Ray has said, the, the FBI director, oh, these were just aspirational statements uh, online. Um, you know, there's reporting that the statements were things like, I'm coming to Washington when January 6th, I'm bringing my guns. <laughs> so. Uh, the idea that that's aspirational. So there's a group investigating that. There's a gold team that is examining the efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to pressure uh, DOJ officials and state legislatures to overturn the election. That's the part that interests me the most. I find that just fascinating. There's a red team that's looking into the whole Stop the Steal movement, all the propaganda, all the rallies, that rally on the ellipse, and then there's a purple team that's digging into domestic violence and extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all of those groups. So I think they get it that this is a much bigger issue than simply the attack that occurred on January 6th. And I would like to think that Merrick Garland and others at the Justice Department also get it and are similarly investigating all of those aspects of the conspiracy and not just the events of January 6th.
2: So you know, picking up on this, Joanne, you know, when we're trying to look for historical parallels, if you define this in terms of, you know, an uprising, uh, a one-day event, you know, then you go and you look at U.S. history and you get, you know, I don't know, I don't know, Shea's Rebellion or Freeze <laughs> Uprising or or you know some some you know the whiskey rebellion or something you know people deciding they're not going to pay taxes those 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 were all those kind of things, but 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 they're very narrowly defined and they tend to be defined around a clash, um, the battle of Blair Mountain you know the, you know even though that was part of a longer series of conflicts around coal, but um, if you look at this as a Bigger plan, a bigger plot to subvert democracy. Whether you call it a conspiracy or not, this becomes more extraordinary because there are very few analogs in American history, um, other than you know the, the the lead up to the Civil War when people planned se- uh, a secession, or or perhaps. Um, the activities of the nemesis of your favorite guy Alexander Hamilton Aaron Burr who decided that he was going to you know create his own little empire in the southwest and you know there was quite a, a plot leading up to that what are the what are what are the analogies and of course none of them involve a president do they
3: right so so there is as you're suggesting a, a long history uh, in american history of Various insurrections or rebellions, as you know, they're usually very targeted at a specific tax that people don't like or um, a specific policy that they don't like. They're narrow. They're not explicitly attempts to overthrow the government. That's an issue that if you go all the way back to the founding, what the founders were most worried about when they were setting this government in motion was demagogues because in their mind, a lot of them distrusted the idea of democracy. They didn't consider our government a direct democracy, but it was very democratic compared with the rest of the world. And what they understood about democracy and they looked back over the past was the vulnerability of any democratic government is a demagogue and a demagogue gets into power and appeals to the people and feeds them words and evokes their passions in a way that pulls them all into him. And then once he has power, He does whatever he wants. And that that's the system in and of itself, by definition, is vulnerable to that. They talk about it a lot. It's kind of remarkable when you look back over their writings and their letters to each other, that's that's fear number one as a demagogue. And that's because they're nervous about the power of the people in a democracy. So you're right. It is not so much the case that so that's part of what's extraordinary now is a president's involvement in it but again even fearing demagogues you have people who want to rise to power but rising to power on the ashes of democracy to be dramatic about it that's a, a distinct case that's a that, to have a president step forward in the still the full authority of the presidency and endorse or encourage or not prevent whatever verb you want to fill into that space to act in that capacity to literally overturn the electoral process that's That's really distinctive. It's part of why, um, to speak really broadly, it's part of why the constitution matters as much as it does. One of the things that that early generation of people assumed was that the constitution had to be understood by people as not just a piece of paper, but a national agreement. It had to be something that couldn't be easily changed because that was the only thing that people could appeal to in a moment like this. But here we are in this moment And all kinds of norms have been violated. And now the Constitution itself is in a variety of different ways being questioned or pulled or pushed. This is a really distinctive combination of things that we're experiencing now you know I I, always hesitate as a historian to say, this is unique. This has never happened before. Pieces of it have happened before. Um, You could even look before the Civil War and say that Southern slaveholders were resorting to violence to try and maintain power. So there's even a tradition of violence as a political tool of sorts. But the combination of things that we're facing now, I think, is really distinctive. And I think as so many things that have unfolded in the last few years, it's hard to know where that leaves us, and it's hard to know what the path forward is, because it's such a, a strange and yet really fraught and perilous moment.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that uh, is frightening about this, that uh, to me, when I look at analogies in history, uh, including some of the kind that you that you referred to, um, is that for decades and decades prior to the Civil War people were making the case that secession was legal there were there were big debates there were popular leaders in congress who were sitting there saying this is a right we have under the constitution and you know teeing this up and you know barb what i worry about to some extent is that it's not just what happened between you know pick 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 your date but months before the election through January 6th, Um, but a lot of it's what's happening now as people are trying to find constitutional rationales for creating a system that isn't actually democratic. And we have, for example, I've I've seen different estimates, but well over a hundred Republicans who have supported the idea of the big lie currently running in their states to be the people who ultimately decide election outcomes and election disputes. And this creates a kind of an institutional structure to do what they attempted to do within some sort of perversion of constitutional um, authorities. Um, And it strikes me that that's one of the reasons that making the conspiracy case is so important because you need to send a message that collaborating with other people to undermine the will of the people, even when you do it behind the fig leaf of some kind of legal authority, um, is you know, the step on the road to authoritarianism and, and demagoguery, as Joanne was talking about.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, not one that I had thought about tying it to before, but I guess if you think about the words of Merrick Garland yesterday, he certainly did so because he talked about Mm -hmm. voting uh, legislation that is suppressing the right to vote in connection with this attack on democracy. And you think about states like Georgia and others, where they have created uh, a specific mechanism for their legislators to uh, throw out the electors in the case of a disputed election and substitute their own view you know, there's already this provision in the U.S. Constitution that talks about that, but the the phrase it uses is a failed election. And I think, and Joanne may know better, what what they had in mind at the time was, you know, what if there's some act of God and you just can't get to the polls that day? There's a hurricane. And so no one voted in the state of South Carolina on election day, our election failed. And so that means we don't have a slate of electors to uh, to represent our state. And so uh, in that drastic case scenario, as a last resort, We'll let our legislature cast those ballots so that South Carolina doesn't go without a representation in deciding who the next president will be. I think that's all done. You know, a, a good idea done in good faith. But as you say, it, it it what it allowed for in this instance. This is the memo written by John Eastman, and also the draft letter that Jeffrey Clark uh, drafted. Uh, adopted this theory, which is pointing legislatures to this provision that says, you know, you could say your election failed. And then you could just um, substitute your own views for the views of the voters. Um, if they specifically in their own state laws, enact laws that give them very specific reasons for doing this beyond a failed election, meaning a, you know, an act of God or a hurricane, but just in a disputed election or widespread fraud or whatever they wanna call it, it legitimizes what the shocking, uh, you know, that legislatures are substituting their votes for the will of the people. And I think this constant drumbeat of election fraud is what gives them the cover to do that. Uh, In spite of the fact that there's just no evidence whatsoever, you know, you've probably seen these too. I've seen some of these man on the street interviews that have been done by reporters in recent days about the election. And there are people who are absolutely convinced despite the complete absence of evidence that Donald Trump won the election and Joe Biden stole it because they flipped seats. Um, And if you think about it, Donald Trump laid the groundwork for that well before the election. Talked about, well, vote by mail, that's going to be fraud. It's going to be fraud. And oh, guess what? His prophecy came true. Um, it's, It's amazing to me how willing people are to believe what they want to be true. And so I do think that those laws, David, that are designed to give legitimacy to legislatures who want to substitute their own decisions for the decisions of the people are really dangerous and damaging. And if there's going to be any scenario where that's allowed, it really ought to be a last case scenario. And in fact... If anything, if that's what they're really worried about, it makes the case for not having voting in one day, but having a period of voting over a period of time so that there is some act of God. Uh, one day of bad weather can't eliminate your election.
2: Um, yeah. Well, I, and I don't say, I hope I don't offend too many people when I say this. I'll offend some, but I, I, whenever I hear people say, well, you know, I believe this to be the case, you know, like eight in 10 Americans believe in the literal existence of angels. Um, you know, there, you know, pick pick your own metric, but there, there, there are a lot of metrics out there that suggest belief and facts are, you know, disconnected at a at a fundamental level. Um, we we usually take a a, a break thirty minutes in, and so we're a couple minutes away from that. But Joanne, I, I, you know, I want to, you know, bring up, you know, one kind of a a large, uh, issue here that strikes me over and over again, and I have to say. It didn't strike me before five years ago as often as it does now. It, you, you know, given the kind of history that you have studied, probably s- struck you more often and much earlier. But, you know, in some ways, the the Constitution is really screwed up. You know, and and you know, we could talk about uh, things like uh, the you know disproportionate power it gives to um, uh, less populated states and and so forth, but. You know, when I think when George Washington handed over the Constitution to the Congress, you know, he said, this is a document that depends on the, I don't know, was goodwill or common sense or some kind of a thing. Um, uh, And of course, depending on that is a a big mistake um, because it doesn't exist. That's why we didn't have the kind of provisions against presidential corruption that would have been handy in the past uh, several years. Um, And... You know, there, there, there are a lot of sort of big gaping holes in it uh, that, that that put us in a position such as the one that we're in now. Um, um, of course, the, they, the holes were partly
3: how it passed, right? So So very deliberately, all of the battles that we fight nowadays, should this be something the states decide, should this be something the national government decides, that vagueness, of federalism is very deliberate because everyone was too frightened of what a national government would be like. As long as they kept that sort of blurred middle ground, the government felt safer to people. So on the one hand, that allowed it to get ushered through and accepted. On the other hand, that blurred middle space, just as you're talking about secession and what states do or don't have the right to do, that's smack in the middle of that deliberately vague middle ground. The other thing is, you know, there were people at the time when it went into motion that weren't absolutely sure it was going to last. They hoped it would. They weren't sure that it would. I mean, that is a ridiculous thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. You know, that was a very long time ago and under circumstances that in a sense couldn't be more different. They put it in motion with an amendment process, assuming that it could get changed as it needed to get changed you know, I think many of them would be surprised it lasted a few hundred years at this point. And yeah, does it absolutely mesh with where we are as a nation and how, where the population is distributed and how our processes work? No, it doesn't. But the question then is, what do you do about that? You know, the easy answer is, well, there's processes, but you know, right, exactly. You're shaking your head and precisely, I don't know how you do that at all. You know, in 1800, there was a really contested presidential election when there were people um, arming in two states in case they needed to seize the election. This ended up being Jefferson, who was tied with Aaron Burr for the presidency. Um, And it was really people were discussing civil war, really fraught, and people were panicked about what was going to happen. And afterwards, someone asked Jefferson, well, what would have happened if everything blew up? I mean... What would have happened? What would you have done? And Jefferson essentially says, well, you know, it would be like a, a rundown clock. And we all get together again and meet and we fix up the Constitution and we put it back into motion. And the fact that that seemed conceivable at that time, in a sense, shows you how alien a world that is. But, you know, it gets me back to something you just said, which is on the one hand, people were teeing up the idea of secession or of civil war over the years, but here's what's interesting about that. They talked about it, particularly southerners threatened it, but they didn't want to be accused of supporting it. They, it was sort of like an ultimate case. So for example, there's a southerner who at one point someone calls him a secessionist and that results in an enormous brawl on the floor of the house because he says, I am not, you're a liar. And then you end up with fisticuffs and weapons and and a big brawl. So on the one hand, they are teeing up that argument, but on the other hand, seemingly unlike today, that felt like a thing that was just a step too far and you didn't want to be acknowledged as someone who wanted that.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to point fingers, but I seem to recall, and it would be better if I could remember the name, that there were even prominent figures at Yale that were promoting the notion of secession um, as, a, as, 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 a, as a legal option. Um, all right. Well, this is the point we normally take an a, a, a infinitesimally small break here for uh, those uh, to say goodbye to the people who uh, are uh, listening to this for free and to encourage them to become members. And then we will continue on after the break with our members for another 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, thanks to all of you who have been listening though, thus far and who are leaving. Go Sign up and become a member now at the dsrnetwork.com. And to the rest of you, we'll be back in one moment.